This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We asked you this past week if you have confidence in our 911 system. The conversation came out of a situation last weekend when a good Samaritan chased an erratic driver but was put on hold for six minutes when he called 911. Does our system need an overhaul or are other problems the cause of this? Libby Snymer put those questions to our Monday Zoomer squad, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, Zoomer media vice president David Kravitz, and CARP's chief policy officer Marissa Lennox. I would think that more staff to answer the phone calls might be one of the solutions here. You know, we know that the standard should be around 10 seconds waiting. In this case, this man waited six minutes. Um, and this isn't a one-off either. I told a story last week on your sh- on your show, Libby, of a man that waited five and a half minutes when his wife wasn't breathing. So we know that this is happening. And what is the government doing to address this challenge? Part of the problem is also that there are a lot of 911 calls that are not emergencies, David. The um, evidence is uh, could be 80 percent, upwards of 80 percent. Now, uh, I get this uh, information from the CRTC, and the listeners might be interested that this technological gap is known in government. As you go, go back as far as 2013, the CRTC was raising the alarm about outmoded technology. They have a plan called NG911, Next Generation 911, and a very complicated technical document as recently as this past March. How are we going to improve it? What are the telcos going to do? What are we going to do? There's a whole other topic about how the calls get routed you know, through the different uh, layers of uh, technology, but uh, they want to move to a, a system where they will be able to triage, they will know, have a better idea of where the call is coming from, and perhaps even be able to respond to uh, uploaded photos and text messages. So they're, as usual, working on it, but where is it? I don't know. <laughs> Peter, I mean, I don't believe any of this is funded, and I don't believe that there is actually a national standard for 911. It's it's a voluntary standard, I think, uh, and and there there are so many different companies involved. It's it's not only like they're not all government, um, you know, regulated. A lot of them are private that work with municipal. Some municipalities don't even have a 911 service. So it's it's pretty patchwork, I think. I do think that triaging makes sense. So, for example, someone may call 911 because they just got home from a weekend away at the cottage and find that their home has been broken into. So they'd call 911. And... In that case, I mean, there's not a, a whole lot of urgency for 911 to respond immediately to that to that individual because the person's already gone and their house has been broken into, so maybe they could wait um, to give their complaint. On the other hand, if someone's called and says, my wife isn't breathing, that needs urgent attention. Yes, no right? kidding. So, or in this case, a man was chasing an erratic, you know, a, a driver that was uh, behaving erratically. 
He might have killed someone in the meantime. He might have been driving um, erratically on the road. He might have veered into another lane, killed someone, or killed the individual that was being that good Samaritan and chasing after him. In that case, that would need immediate attention. Here is an opportunity, uh, you know, where I would agree with spending money on an education campaign. So maybe they need to, you know, book some ads with this is a 911 emergency and here are a bunch of things. That aren't. And they can use the funds from the fines that they collect. Right. Yeah. Perfect. But the patchwork extends to um, who's accountable, what should the system be capable of doing, how well trained are the operators. And they have a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sitting mm-hmm. here poo pooing, you know, from a safe distance their performance, but the patchwork extends to the accountability. There's tough supervision here. There's no supervision over there. There's medium supervision over yonder. It's just this patchwork, I think, that's the problem. And then that's without even going into the topic of remote communities, particularly in the North, that don't have anything. Nothing. Well, and and you also think about the challenges of people that do call 911 and that need 911 urgently. First, they're waiting six minutes, and then it's going to take a half hour for an ambulance to even get there. So... You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I've, I've uh, read that the technology is literally half a century old, some yeah. of that call. Yeah, and and every every ambulance call, they have to go right to hospital. That's that's their only choice, right? Like, they can't turn it down. They, they always go to hospital, and it creates um, log jams in ER, you know. Well, one thing is clear, though. If you think, if you suspect you're having a medical emergency... Or there's a you know a, a criminal on the road. You should call nine one one. If you got the wrong pizza, yeah, don't be calling nine one one. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. And Zoomer Media Vice President David Kravitz, Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. How was your mood this past Monday? It was the third Monday of the year, known as Blue Monday, the most depressing day of the year. There's no scientific proof behind this, but many of us certainly feel feel the winter blues during this time of year. There's the lack of sunshine combined with financial stress now that we're in the post-holiday season. SAD, or seasonal affective disorder, is definitely a real thing, and many older people may experience heightened isolation if they're afraid of going out on icy sidewalks and roads. Also, Credit Canada Debt Solutions has added another D to the syndrome, seasonal affective debt disorder. Joining Libby to discuss, Lori Campbell, CEO of Credit Canada, and psychologist Dr. Stacy Thomas. You know, it's a little concerning when, when people are saying to almost expect to be blue today. You know, it is the middle of winter. It is a time when some people who are more affected by the, the lesser levels of light might feel uh, the crunch, the feeling of not being able to feel motivated, low mood, irritability, a whole host of things. So I'm thankful that for the labeling of the day, insofar as it brings our attention to mental health and solutions that can help. Lori Campbell, people are getting their bills and that can't be a good thing when it comes to their mood. 
Well, exactly, Lizzie. Uh, it's, it's the truth. The people are getting their bills and they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed just because they realize probably they've overspent. Uh, and, you know, it's not really blue money so much as, as, as uh, was mentioned, feeling kind of sad around this time of year. And then you've got that coupled with the fact that, yeah, you really can't go out and do much because you've got these crippling debts that you have to now deal with. When it comes to sad Dr. Thomas, uh, light therapy, there's this use of lamps that uh, mimic the effects of sunlight. So how can people know if they actually need that or if uh, their situation is somewhat less clinical? Well, I mean, in terms of determining whether or not you have a clinical level of depression really has to do with the functional impact. Is this getting in the way of you taking care of the normal activities of your life? Do you have a hard time with your motivation, your concentration? Are you snapping at people? Are you feeling like you want to be more and more isolated? These are all important signs that this is a significant issue. That said, everyone can benefit from the strategies that help. So you don't need to be at that level to be able to benefit from getting some extra light. And I would say that actually the most effective treatment, they've done some studies on groups of people diagnosed with SAD, so a clinical level of seasonal affective disorder. So they are depressed during the winter months. And they followed them for a year. Some of them had cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a form of psychological therapy that allows people to become aware of how their thoughts and behaviors affect their mood. And they learn strategies to interfere with that cycle, to turn it from a negative to a positive. When people have had that, in addition to light therapy or just on their own, one year later, they did not have SAD. People who just had light therapy on its own actually had a relapse rate of about 63%. So light therapy, absolutely. But learning how to impact, be aware of your thinking and your behavior is what's going to lead to real change. Lori Campbell, tell me about the gap between people knowing that they're overextended, that their bills are piling up, and them actually doing something about it and and how that affects mood based on what you see in clients. Well, Libby, what we find is that a lot of individuals who... uh, as was mentioned, take the proper steps to to rectify their financial situation. And we're talking about, you know, putting a plan in place that's very solid, it's very goal-oriented, will come out of this and and have a better or more successful financial future. But what our um, survey showed was that we've got a lot of millennials that um, are, are stating that they're going to save money, but at the same time spending a lot. So they might be saving money in certain areas, such as not going out for dinner and those types of things. But then on on the other hand, they're ordering in a lot more than the rest of the of the, the uh, those outside of that uh, generation. So we really feel that there's a, a disconnect between what people say they're going to do and what they're actually doing, and that becomes a real cyclical problem with debt because it's very hard to get out of. Dr. Stacy Thomas, I think awareness is is key, and being realistic with what this time of year is. You don't have to be passive in terms of uh, just getting through it or surviving it. Take it on. Decide that you want to have a good winter. You want to experience having a good mood, positive energy this winter. So what's it going to take? And it might mean talking to professional. It might mean rallying with other friends who set the same goal and you support each other. 
Psychologist Dr. Stacey Thomas and Lori Campbell, CEO of Credit Canada, with Libby on Blue Monday, this past January 20th. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Developments around the downing of Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752 continued to make headlines. On Tuesday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about the challenge of repatriating the bodies of loved ones lost in the shot-down plane because Iran does not recognize the Canadian citizenship of many of the victims. There are also issues around the black boxes and whether Iran will cooperate and send them to investigators in Ukraine or France. Joining Libby's Nimer that same day, our fight-back strategy panel, Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernstcliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. The Prime Minister, I think, is doing the best he can. I think he's been uh, certainly out there and and um, and uh, consoling the families of those that, that were involved in the in the tragedy, and and he's been going across the country, sort of you know saying that and, and being able to uh, to try to do his best to to console such a, a horrible um, uh, accident. I think when it comes to Iran, it's a tough tough. Uh, uh, issue, no matter how you look at it, from from the perspective of, the, you know, you can't believe what they say. You, you don't, you, they don't recognize certain things that traditional countries would 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 obviously look at. Uh, the prime minister is obviously um, putting some pressure on Iran by saying, "Look at, at least give us the black box. You guys don't have the technology to be able to assess and read and and and, and find out and analyze what what the black box uh, uh, data says. So at least if you don't want to send it to Canada, send it to another country, ideally France, and let them analyze it and do something. There's got to be some closure for families. And, and, and that's one of the ways that you can probably do it. And I'm not sure he's going to get any success. And he can't rely on the U.S. to help in this regard either, because, of course, Iran and the U.S. have, a, have their own uh, challenges. So a tough situation for Canadians and a tough one for the prime minister. The black box, I thought, was supposed to go to Ukraine, and they kind of changed their minds at the last minute. So I think there's a lot of that bait and switch, Charles. Even Iran's own civil aviation organization has admitted that they don't have the technical expertise to um, deal with the black box adequately. Apparently, it was damaged as a result of the crash, but the memory is still intact. But Iran's civil aviation organization has actually come out and said that it really they will need assistance from France and the United States. Um, match that up against the politics of the situation. Of course, you know Iran finds itself in an unenviable position um, in terms of uh, international politics and diplomacy. Um, They are reacting in a way that indicates some degree of contrition for all the good that does the the families of the victims. Um, And Canada's foreign affairs minister, um, Francois-Philippe Champagne, met with his Iranian counterpart in Oman last Friday. And uh, the government continues to stress the importance of the black box being the black boxes being sent to folks who can actually handle uh, their deciphering and the downloading of information. So it's it's really beyond the pale to think that the Iranians would use the the pretense of their unwillingness to recognize dual citizenship as a way of holding on to the bodies of the deceased. It's just, it's it's the kind of international nightmare they do not need. And I think they will come around. Should the West be tougher with them? Say, listen, you don't play ball on this. We're going to shut down aviation. Mm -hmm. Well, it certainly is a geopolitical nightmare uh, in that the Iranian people want answers too. And the Iranian government can't give answers to their own people. So now they're relying on the goodwill of France to help them solve this issue for, for their own people. 
so that um, puts them in an unenviable position to the point that was raised earlier. But the challenge that Iran, Iran has is that they, they just can't recognize dual citizenship for those that have been involved in a plane accident. You either recognize dual citizenship or you don't, and they don't. So although Canada can ask for it, I don't think it's a concession that will be granted. But as we ask for many things, the hope is, to John's point, is that eventually we'll get closure on what happened in the flight and how it was down and what, what led to that and get some more closure for those families. But I, I don't think it's reasonable to think that those bodies are coming home. Libby, if I can just quickly interject, it's important to remember that Canada is not alone in, in this particular question. I mean, uh, Afghanistan, the Ukraine, Britain, Sweden, all lost citizens. And so um, these countries have, in fact, formed an international coordination and response group for the victims of the flight. And so we're not alone in this. We are working in a concerted effort. And you know the United States is also quite involved as well. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stintz, former Toronto City Councillor and now CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It has the potential for a global public health emergency that is reminding us of the SARS outbreak in 2003. As of Friday, the World Health Organization had not declared a global health emergency, but the new coronavirus is a health threat in central China where it first developed and has had deadly results. Early in the week, on Tuesday, Libby was joined to discuss the outbreak to that point with Dr. Jerome Lease, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Sunnybrook, and Dr. Susie Hoda, Infectious Disease Specialist with the University Health Network. So coronaviruses are a family of respiratory viruses that um, can infect humans or animals. And there are a number of them out there. There are actually seven that can infect, infect humans. And that family does include some viruses such as SARS, which we are familiar with here in Canada, um, which can cause serious pneumonias. But other coronaviruses can cause symptoms that are actually very similar to the common cold. So runny nose, sore throat, cough, fever, that kind of thing. Dr. Lees, has it been verified yet whether this is a very, very serious virus or one of the lighter ones? I mean, six people have died, and I believe the count now is something over 250 cases. Yeah, so uh, it's important to give some of those numbers some context. So, uh, you know, people can die of respiratory viral infections. And I know, uh, you know, some comparisons have been made to uh, to more severe infections like SARS that we saw back in 2003. Uh, I'll just say that right now we're still learning about this particular virus. Um, it's still early and we're following it closely. But based on the numbers, uh, the, um, the number of deaths that we've seen is actually lower uh, compared to SARS. And it seems to to be that uh, this virus may not cause as serious an infection, but of course the situation uh, is still evolving and we're monitoring it closely. We may just be earlier in the process because, uh, first of all, good news, China seems to be more open about owning up to this than they were in the SARS outbreak, right? 
Uh, absolutely, I would say so. I mean, they've been working very closely with the WHO from the beginning. Um, and I think that's an important key difference between what we faced during SARS and what we're facing now. Uh, we're, we're getting the communications much more rapidly and more readily than uh, we did previously, um, you know, more than a decade ago. So that already puts us in a better position to prepare and understand the progress of what's going on. That said, early in any kind of new infectious disease that's emerging, there are a lot of uncertainties, like Dr. Lee had mentioned, and we do have to uh, be cautious about drawing conclusions while information is still percolating in. Are we being overly concerned, uh, overly, you know, are we being hysterical about this because of our experience with SARS? You know, I certainly think that in uh, Toronto, that's very understandable. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think we need to, uh, you know, reduce the level uh, of anxiety. We need to remember that this isn't 2003. There have been a lot of advances. Uh, as we're learning about this virus, uh, it really seems like uh, our usual practices should be, allow us to, uh, to, to pick up cases. And we have testing now available. And we have uh, a lot of practices in place to limit transmission, you know, in some of our healthcare institutions. And so, yeah, the, the message is, you know, uh, the, 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 the risk is very low. Uh, it's, the, the sky is not falling. Uh, and, you know, I, as I mentioned uh, before, you know, uh, it, it's interesting that a lot of uh, attention is, is being paid to this. And, you know, certainly it's evolving and there are changes. And so it's, it's appropriate. But let's not forget that, uh, you know, influenza kills, uh, you know, over 3,500 Canadians every season in a predictable fashion. And, uh, you know, in, in the general public, our vaccine rates uh, continue to hover around uh, 40%. And, you know, I think that's a failed opportunity given that we have something that can protect uh, Canadians from that infection, which is a, a far greater risk this time of year. Okay, I think that's a very good point. Uh, and Dr. Hoda, what else would you like to leave us with? I think I'd want to leave um, the audience with the knowledge that we are watching things very carefully and we're exercising a lot of vigilance. We're really trying to keep on top of what's happening throughout the world and locally. Um, and, you know, just kind of instill some confidence that there is a system in place to try and deal with this. Um, and so absolutely coming back to the last point and how uh, Dr. Lee said well articulated, um, you know, that the sky is not falling. There's no reason to panic, but we should be watching and cautious and uh, keep people informed. And that's why, you know, sessions like this are really important to me and to make sure that people are aware that there is there there are people who are uh, are watching this carefully and taking care of it. Dr. Susie Hota, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network, and Dr. Jerome Lease, medical director of infection prevention and control at Sunnybrook. Their conversation with Libby Snymer this past Tuesday. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of this past week. Bert phoned from Kitchener to offer his suggestions on how 911 could be more efficient. I've never called it myself. I've always kept the number of the local police service on hand so that even late at night I use that if I see something out of the ordinary. If people were a little more aware that there's another number to call besides 911, uh, it might lessen the workload for uh, some of those operators. 
Pat called from Toronto to offer his thoughts on seasonal affective disorder. My late mother was very much affected by SAD, and I noticed the other week that I've got the the light box sitting in the garage. Uh, I've never needed it, but she certainly swore by it. And, um, you know, it it is a real event uh, that occurs for many people. But I'm surprised we're talking about January. The month I hate is November. Mm. And it's dark and it's wet and it's cold and it's only of any use to people who are hunters. I mean, uh, at least then we have December with Christmas. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ashley in Brampton, who agrees with her city councillors that there is a health care emergency there. I'm 28 years old. I have lived in Brampton all my life. There really, really, truly is no exaggeration when it comes to the wait times and the level of care that you get when you go to Brampton Civic Hospital. You often feel like you are not even a human being. I have been going to the hospital on and off since 2007 uh, due to a motor vehicle accident where I broke my back. I would say 85 to 90 percent of the time you are in a hallway or a waiting room that is not only over capacity with patients, but over capacity with guests. Seats are taken up, tempers start to flare when the wait times are as long as they are. Honestly, the level of care that I get there, uh, I could honestly get that at any walking clinic that didn't give, well, two cents about you. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.